and a good reminder of where we need to return as, as a nation. We'll uh, excuse our children for Kid Venture at this time. We are taking a journey chronologically through the entire Bible, 31 weeks, and we're about two-thirds of the way through. We just finished a couple weeks ago the Old Testament, and this morning we are pressing on into the New Testament. <clears throat> last, uh, last Sunday we celebrated Christmas in June and looked at the birth of Christ, and this morning we're going to take that next segment uh, of Christ's early ministry and his life. And so I, I look forward to this time uh, together with you. If you live to be 80 years of age, <clears throat> much of your life will be filled with the very mundane. I was just looking through a uh, list of some things that make up the time of our lives. We have about nine, if you live to be 80, 80, 80 years, you will live about 954 months. One third of that time you'll be sleeping, okay? Seven years of that time, they tell us, you'll be trying to sleep, but you can't. The average American spends about seven years of their life in insomnia. <clears throat> That's encouraging, huh? So that brings us down to 636 months. Then uh, about 15 years of your life will be in some form of education. Brings you down to 593 months. You find that you spend about 13 months on the toilet. These are <coughs> real life things here. Uh, six years of your life will be eating. You'll spend five years of your life waiting in line. Now six months of that is traffic lights, but that's still a lot of time waiting. You will spend one year of your, t one whole year looking for things that you've lost. <laughs> Some of us will spend more than that. This is kind of sad. You only spend two weeks of your life kissing another important person in your life. <clears throat> only two weeks out of your whole life. So, we have to work on that one. Four years on the phone, six months shaving, one year sick in bed, the average person 11 years in front of the TV, five months complaining, five to ten years on the net, maybe more than that for you wives, five and a half years cleaning your house. Men spend, I thought it'd be, men spend about 46 days out of their life getting ready, and women about 136 days. I thought it would be more than that, but <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like it's more than that, but anyway, I could go on and on. Here's the point. Much of our lives seems, doesn't it just seem kind of mundane, like, Take it out the trash, going to the grocery store, mowing the grass, you just get things fixed up around the house, something else breaks, putting on the screen door. Do you ever feel like much of your life is just sort of mundane stuff that you have to do just to keep up? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but God enters the world 
as a man. God enters his universe, becomes a man, and he only lives 33 years. They tell us that the prime of life is between 30 and 35. So in the very prime of life, Jesus exits. And then, he's here 33 years. In the first 30 years, we know almost nothing. We have some words about his birth. Then there's this incident when he was 12, when he's, his parents are in Jerusalem, and he stays back because he's in the temple. And other than that, we hear nothing. For 30 of 33 years, that Christ is here. As far as we can tell, he's pounding nails and, and doing his carpentry work and just growing up. I just think that's interesting to think about. You know, sometimes our stories may seem like they're filled with a lot of mundane, but I'm here to tell you that even when Christ was here, the vast majority of his life was filled with the mundane. But then there was those moments in time when he carried out what, what God had called him to do beyond the mundane. At age 30, we're going we're gonna to pick that up this morning, but let me, just, let me just say this. What if God had, I don't know if you've ever been in a play and you didn't get a big part, but you got one line. You ever had, anybody ever had one line in a play? Oh, a lot of people. What if God puts you here for one line? What if he just puts you here for one conversation that totally changed the course of something in the story? We don't know, we don't know what we're here for exactly. We, we don't know how God might use, but, you know, what if it was, what if it's not a, a big part? We all can't be Moses. We, we all can't be King David. We looked at these characters. We all can't be Paul. But we can be what, what God has called us to be, whatever that is. And so I, I want to encourage you in that way here today. You know, you may be a woman who travels all over the world and does seminars, or you may be a woman who stays home and takes care of the three children and, and cleans the house and supports a husband. You may be here and you may be single. And you may have a unique role because you don't have other responsibilities. R remember, Jesus was single. He didn't need a family. He didn't need to be married to fulfill God's purpose in his life. Maybe you're somebody that runs a company and is responsible for employing thousands of people. Or maybe you're somebody that just mows the two widows' grass on the block down the street and does a factory job somewhere. It, it doesn't matter what the role is. God has called us to play a, a part in this story. Jesus' active ministry here was very short, but evidently it's all that God needed to accomplish the purpose that he had for him. He didn't come to start a seminary. He didn't come to raise a model family. We see here that he didn't come to start first century churches. The Bible says he came to do one thing. 
He came to seek and to save the lost. So how does he do that? Well, if you've been reading through the story, I'm just going to walk through some of the uh, stories that you read if you're reading in the story. We see it starts with his baptism. He gets baptized by John. I think baptism is important for a believer. It's the first thing that Jesus does. First thing in his ministry is he goes to John and he, he tells John that he, is, he needs to be baptized by him. This was prophesied in the Old Testament in Malachi 3.1. We see that there would come this voice crying in the wilderness, which was John the Baptist, announcing the coming of the Messiah. And so Jesus comes to John and he is baptized and, and John says, I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. Jesus, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, in, in order to do things rightly, in order to fulfill all righteousness, this is the way it needs to be done. So Jesus is identifying with us. He's identifying with our humanity. And so as he begins his ministry, he is baptized. It's also the last thing he instructed us to do, is to go make disciples, baptizing them. And so we see he comes, the Spirit of God descends upon him, announces a, a blessing. This is my son whom I love. And Jesus comes up out of the water. And the next thing that happens is he gets tested. He gets called into the wilderness. And so what he's exposed to is the temptation that he's going to be exposed to for the next three years. There's three of them. One, the first one is the temptation to simply satisfy his fleshly desires. And the one he picks here is food. We all love food, don't we? It represents those fleshly desires. The only thing is, this wasn't Jesus turning down a, a chocolate fudge brownie at the end of the meal. We're talking 40 days with no food, fasting, and he is tempted to... He's tempted to, to receive this food, to turn a stone into bread and satisfy his hunger. And Jesus says, you know what? Man does not live by bread alone. The second temptation was, his, was the, the temptation to use the power that he had indiscriminately. So Satan takes him up to this temple. He says, hey, why don't you just jump off of here and, and have the angels protect you? And you can just kind of float down the ground. Just think how impressive that would be. Jesus would be tempted many times during his ministry to use his power indiscriminately. I mean, if you had the power to just zap somebody and they were giving you a bad time. But Jesus here took the stairs, walked down, because God was not calling him to use his power to throw himself off the temple. He would have many opportunities to misuse his power, which he did not. And then the third one was a temptation to open, open himself up to the things that Satan had to offer him and there give worth to Satan. Satan said, look, I, I'm in charge of all the kingdoms of the world. You just, just worship me for a minute and I'll give, you all the, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus responds, you shall worship the Lord your God only. He goes back to the scripture each time. He refuses him the temptation so now it appears that Jesus is ready to proceed out into the ministry God has called him to. So he does so by calling to himself a group of people. Kind of no-name people. Just common people. If Jesus came, it would be people in this room. 
I mean, they were fishermen. We don't know all the occupations, but a number of them were fishermen. And Jesus, one day we find that, that Jesus comes and John is with Andrew and another disciple and, and John looks at Andrew and says, you know who that is? That's the Lamb of God. And so Andrew goes up to him and says, Jesus, where, where are you staying? Jesus says, come and see. And so Andrew hangs out with Jesus the rest of the day. He goes back to his brother Peter and he says, Peter, guess who I just hung out with all day? The Messiah. He claims to be the Messiah. He, I have this feeling he is. And so Peter joins in. The next day, Jesus sees this guy named Philip. Talks to him. Philip goes and gets his brother. And this is what he said. We found the one Moses wrote about. So Philip thinks this, is, this guy's it. But Nathaniel has his questions. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the reputation of, of Nazareth where Jesus came out of. Jesus says, come and see. And so Nathan is skeptical, and, he's, and Jesus knows that. So he's talking with him, and he says, and, he, and, he, and Nathaniel gets the idea, this feeling that Jesus knows him. He says, he says, how, how did you know who I am? And Jesus said, I saw you when you were out under the fig tree, which evidently he was doing something earlier in the day, and, and Nathaniel's going, there is no way he could know what I was doing. And so we see Nathaniel's response here as he says, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. So we find that Jesus begins to gather this small group around him. And why would they leave everything and follow him? <clears throat> Is it, was it because they were so spiritual? No. It was because they thought he was a Messiah. And you know what? Messiahs have power and they have prestige and they have fame and they had wealth and they're going, we're getting in on the inside track on the ground floor with a guy who's the next great great, great, greater than David and we're going to hang out with this guy and we're going to see where this goes. And so the disciples got together. It would take three years for them to even begin to understand what was really in it for them and what they would eventually find out that it was far greater than they ever imagined it could be. Far greater than fame, far greater than prestige, far greater than all the wealth in the world. <clears throat> well, Jesus then begins his public ministry, <clears throat> and it involves more than building furniture, as he'd done for the first 30 years of his life. It involves turning water into wine. Jesus moves into towns. He begins healing people. You can read the stories of all the people that he healed. And it would appear that Jesus came uh, to, to healer, as a healer, to meet the needs of people. But then one day, he's healing, and the crowds are coming, and Jesus gets up really early in the morning, and he goes out to a mountain, and he goes away from the people. And the disciples come, and they said, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. There's more sick, there's more lame. Jesus says, you know what? We need to move on. We, meet, we need to move to other towns, because I, I, I need to preach a message. So it's not just about healing people, it's about preaching a message. 
We see this come out in the, in, in the, just a couple days later where he's in this room, it's packed with people, and he's talking, and all of a sudden there's stuff from the roof that starts trickling down, and he looks up, and there's some guys up there, and they're dismantling the roof. They would lay branches and things on the roof over a framework, and so there's these guys up there with a paralyzed man. They're, they're taking the roof apart because they couldn't get to Jesus. I mean, this is kind of a comical scene, but Jesus is talking, and all of a sudden this guy is being lowered down on a mat with ropes in front of him. And so they finally get him in front of Jesus, this paralyzed man, been paralyzed most of his life, and they're waiting for the words. And what Jesus said shocked them all. They thought he was going to say, get up and walk. You know what he said? He said, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And then he said this, and so you may know that I have the power to forgive sin, get up and walk. But getting up and walking was secondary. Jesus came for something far greater. Jesus came for something far greater to provide food and, and healing from disease. He came to provide forgiveness. And we see this theme continue through the story. We, we began to see now that this becomes the focus of Jesus' life. This is why he's here. Not to deal with all the illness, not to deal with all the shortages, not to deal with all, all that stuff, but he came to deal with the greatest enemy of man, and that is our sin. Well, Jesus takes these 12, and there were, he takes them up to the mountain one day, and he does something amazing. He says, you know what? All authority is given unto me. I'm, gonna, I'm giving it now to you. And I'm going to send you out. And the disciples went out and they had the same power. They had the same power to heal. And they had, they had the same power to cast out demons that Jesus did. Why? Because they were such spiritual people. No, because Jesus gave them the power. And he gave them the authority. And so they went out in his name, and, and they went about and did the work, the same work that, that he had done. And so we, we come to the end of, of these initial stages in, in Jesus' ministry. So we've just kind of walked through that this morning. These are some of the first incidences in, in Jesus' life. From a from a lower story level, from the lower story, from the way it looks, what we have here is this great teacher, this rabbi, this one who came to help people, and you know what? Even, even has the power to do miracles. If you ask people what they think about Jesus today, you'll get a variety of experiences of responses, but they all reflect, very few of them reflect what's really going on in the person of Christ. Uh, I'm just going to show a portion of this. Listen to some of, this is an interview on the street here.
Okay. A dead man who did a lot of good things in his time. If you ask the first century Jew, uh, if you ask them what, what the Messiah, the Savior, was coming to do, he would say that he was coming to save us from Rome. Save us from Rome. Save us from this captivity that we are in. And, and in reality, there's something way bigger going on. Something way bigger. As we move from what appears, what appears to be in the lower story to what's really going on in the upper story, what you'll begin to see that God's love is greater than you ever imagined it could be. That his mercy is much greater than you imagined it could ever be. That his justice is more complete than you ever imagined it could be. That his patience, his generosity, his power is, is, is bigger. That, that's why people couldn't grasp it. People didn't have a problem with it because it was too big. Or because it was... They didn't have a problem with it because it was too small. It's because it was too big that people couldn't grasp it. And so Jesus runs into these people. He runs into Nicodemus. Remember him? He sees what Jesus is doing. He's a religious figure, one of the Pharisees, and he comes to Jesus at night. Obviously, he doesn't want to be seen. And he comes to Christ, and this is what he said to him. He said, God is, God is with you. There's no way you could do what you do if God wasn't with you. So Jesus sensed his heart, and he says, you want to be a part of the kingdom of God? You have to be born again. So Nicodemus now, he's thinking lower level story, born again. So, okay, I'm old. I somehow have to go back into my mother's womb and be born. So he's, he's trying to figure this out. He's thinking on, on the lower story level. So he asked Jesus, how can you go back into your mother's womb? And then we see that, that, that Nicodemus really makes the point. We find, we find this story in the, in the Gospel of John. Let me just read a little bit of it. <clears throat> Chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he's born of the water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. So Jesus is trying to tell him he's talking about the spiritual realm here, not the, not the lower story level. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. And Nicodemus, he makes the point here about the bigness of God's story. He says, how can this be? How can this be? He doesn't get it. And, and Jesus goes on, he says, you know, I have told you things, in essence, he says, I've told you things about the lower story, and you don't even get that. How are you going to understand the upper story? How are you going to understand what I really came to do? And then he gives Nicodemus a metaphor to try and help him understand in, in verse 14, chapter 3. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now Nicodemus knew that story. There was a plague upon the people. Moses put this snake on a cross, and, and he, he lifted it up. And if people would look to it and, and believe in it, they would be healed. So he's giving him an analogy. He said, in, in a similar way, 
we see this is what needs to happen in your life. And then he writes probably some of the most well-known words in the Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not set his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So the upper story, God's doing something here way beyond what, way beyond saving people from Rome. He's coming to save people from the condemnation that they are under because of their sin. Then he goes to, uh, he meets a Samaritan woman. She's had a different life. Uh, Nicodemus was a very religious man. The Samaritan woman, five marriages, her live-in boyfriend. She heads down to the local well for a routine trip to get some water, and there she meets Jesus. Whenever the people meet Jesus, there's nothing routine about it. Jesus looks at her and says, uh, could you give me a drink? She says, how can you ask me for a drink? Number one, men didn't talk to women. Jesus is talking to her. She's also Samaritan. Jews didn't talk to, to uh, Samaritans. She's going, how can you ask me for a drink? This is what Jesus said. <clears throat> he said, if you knew the gift that God has for you and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would be asking me for living water and I would have given it to you. She looks at him. Now she's thinking lower story. She goes, well, you don't even have a bucket. How could you give me living water when you don't even have a bucket? Jesus says, the water I offer, you drink it, <clears throat> you will never thirst again. And, and she doesn't understand it, but she says, well, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming here. I'd love this water where I never have to thirst again. Then, then Jesus moves in to get to the real need that this woman has. He says, call your husband. She says, I'm not married. He says, you're right about that. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. Now she's getting goosebumps. She goes, sir, I, I see that you're a prophet. And then she kind of diffuses it. She says, you know, some say we should worship God on this mountain and some on this mountain. And Jesus says, you know what? That doesn't matter. The day's coming when those who worship God worship him in spirit and in truth. And then she says something that's really funny, I think. She looks at him. She says, well, you know what? One day, the Messiah is going to come and he'll explain it to us. <laughs> and this had to be one of those moments where just, Jesus just loves the next line because he looks there and he says, 
you're talking to him. I am the Messiah. So Jesus keeps running into people and they, you know, they don't understand that he's the king that's come. They don't understand what this means because people are living in the lower story and God's doing something in the bigger picture, in the bigger story, and they can't see beyond their own framework. Nicodemus couldn't grasp it. The Samaritan woman couldn't grasp it. They began to grasp it. The religious leaders couldn't grasp it. The disciples really didn't grasp it either until sometime after his resurrection. Well, let me conclude. Uh, How does this apply to us today? You know, some of us are like Nicodemus. There's some people here that have grown up in the church, religious people. uh, We've learned to do things. uh, We've we've learned to play the, you know, we, we, we read the Bible, which is good. We pray, which is good. We say that we're sinners deep down. But, you know, very subtly, sometimes we, we kind of feel like we're a little better because we're doing it right. And we're obeying most of the laws, at least. And we wouldn't say that, but we don't really think that our nature is just as evil as the guy that's sleeping in with a hangover this morning. I mean, ask yourself that. Do you, as you sit there today, are you, are you feeling like, you know, if you've grown up in the church and, and you're trying to live your life, do you feel like somehow you're not quite as evil as somebody else? Scripture says we're all in the same boat. Our, our sinful natures are all the same. They're all evil to the core. They just express themselves in different ways. Or maybe like the Samaritan woman, and maybe your life seems to be one mistake after another. You look back in your life, and you have blown it here, and blown it there, and blown it there, and, you know, you've lost relationships, you may be in trouble with the law, and you feel like, you know what, I'd never get a major role in God's story. Then you start reading God's story, and you're the exact kind of person he puts up in major roles. Look at the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He was one of the most uh, he was one of the most ungodly men of his day, responsible for the death of Christians, persecution of the church. Those are the kind of people God uses when he writes his story. And, and then, you know, there's the crowd. They're in the, how Jesus can fit into their story, how he can how he can meet their basic needs. You know, the people of Israel, you know what God said about them in the desert when things got really hard? It says God brought the leanness of soul. You know why? Because he wanted to see what was in their heart. So God will disrupt our lower stories and he'll, re- he'll change our lo- lower stories and put obstacles there to get us into the upper story. Into the upper story of what God is doing in the lives of people And Jesus Christ has come to free you and to free me from the greatest enemy of our lives, the greatest enemies of our soul. And that is our sin. And he came to die. And he came to die for that sin, for your sin, for my sin, 
He came as the ultimate sacrifice after years and years and years of sacrificing all these animals. Now the Lamb of God has come. God himself becomes that Lamb, goes to that cross. It's just an incredible story. You would have never dreamt it up. No one could have ever written it except God. But that's the story that he's writing. And nobody got it in Jesus' day. And there's a whole lot of people in our day that don't get it either. But it's our job for those who get it. That's why we burn this candle. It's our job to go out and, and tell people the story. That there's an upper story, no matter what's happening in your lower story, the past, doesn't matter what it's been. God has a story that he's writing. And the entrance into that story is the person of Jesus Christ. And it's his name that we celebrate today. Father, this morning we thank you for the life of Christ. And we thank you what you came to do for us. And you are inviting us to move into this upper story, to let go of our lower stories, to let go of some of the plans that we have for our lives, or the, way, the way we would like to see things happen. And you are inviting us into this place where we can say not our will be done, but your will be done. You're inviting us into this place where you want to bless us beyond, so far beyond the meager little things that we look for in our lower stories. That you want to bring us, you want to bless us with forgiveness. That you want to bless us with mercy. That you want to bless us with life that is eternal. That you want to bless us with the knowledge that though our lower stories are really hard and really difficult, that you are working something out for our good, even in the midst of it. And so, Father, we just we proclaim that truth today that Jesus Christ has come into the world, that he's come to bring us forgiveness, that he's come to bring us hope, and that he's come to bring us life. It is that which we celebrate today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.